Our scripture reading is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18, through chapter 6, verse 12. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Last night in Joe Biden's speech, he quoted the Bible. So he said he was going to quote the Bible, and then he said something from the Bible, but he didn't cite his reference. And I'm wondering if you saw his speech, if you recognized it, or if you even remember it. I naturally get in tune with this. Maybe uh, it went by you. But he quoted one Bible section in the whole of his speech. What was it? It was the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, that excites somebody like me. I think, boy, if I was going to write a president's speech, wouldn't Ecclesiastes be a great book? Because you could talk about how after all of this campaigning, everything is a chasing of wind and everything is vanity. But actually, those are not the passages from Ecclesiastes that he quoted. He quoted Ecclesiastes 3. Perhaps the most famous, the most well-known, we looked at it you know, some months ago, um, but the, the portion where it talks about a time and a season for everything in life. There's a time for building up, a time for tearing down, and so on and so on. His application of that was his aspiration that this would be a time of healing for our country. But biblical wisdom recognizes that life has these times and seasons, and sometimes things are very good, sometimes things are not good. 
And human beings have to adapt, and that's one of the, the roles of Ecclesiastes in the wisdom tradition, which is to say, if you think it's simple, you know, like maybe Proverbs is all, if you, if you live your life fine, everything will go well, or Job is just, if everything's miserable, this is how you lament it. Um, Ecclesiastes has this sense in which we, we don't know, we can't control things. To live wisely, you have to be able to adapt to different situations. And so, so uh, what we know is that when things are not going well, if we assume that around the corner, there's a better time period, well, then, then we can make it. We could press on because there's hope. Ecclesiastes asks the hard kinds of questions, which is what about those situations where the time and season where things are not good goes on so long? Uh, what do you do then? <laughs> and that happens. And, and that's kind of, it's, it's the passage we're looking at today has another one of those examples of the kind of thing that troubles Koheleth. Koheleth is the figure that we're learning from in the book of Ecclesiastes, who's asking these deep questions. Now, last night in, in the, the presidential speech, both Biden and Harris in their speeches talked about the soul of America. Um, and the word soul, an interesting question to me, it appears in our passage in numerous times. And so I was thinking about the soul. So I walked into that phrase, well, what is the soul of America? How would you answer that question? And I think a good starting point to, to get towards it, I, I, I don't actually have the answer for the question, what is the soul of America, but it's something I'll probably be thinking about these upcoming weeks. But I think a beginning of the answer is to look at the words of Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. What are the inalienable rights that we want government to protect for people? What are our priorities? Well, it's life, liberty, but then perhaps maybe a creative twist, a bit of a, maybe a subtle surprise, the pursuit of happiness. That's an interesting one. Is that at the soul of our nation, this assumption that, that we should and could be pursuing happiness, that it's a fundamental right? And it's an interesting question to raise because on the one hand, maybe there's a discomfort. Should we be pursuing happiness? Is happiness itself ephemeral? <laughs> Is it chasing wind to use the imagery of the book of Ecclesiastes? Can you take hold of happiness? Should we be pursuing it? And maybe more maturely, you would say, no, you don't seek after happiness because in the wisdom tradition, it's the fool who just wants to get right to happiness and is not willing to do any of the work. We know that there are times and seasons for everything. And sometimes you just have to suffer. You have to grin and bear it. You have to do, invest. You have to do work. You have to delay your gratification. But you do so knowing that that's a path of the pursuit of happiness. So you don't pursue happiness as a thing in itself, but perhaps your thinking is, but if you pursue good things, you know, happiness should be a byproduct, an outcome. It should be, to some degree, a, a metric of whether or not you're living well. This question of living well and this question of, of happiness surely is at least behind the scenes in the last couple of months of what has been a demoralizing political uh, debate. Different visions of happiness and who has rights to live certain ways and all these kinds of questions that are in our mindset. But, but the passage we're looking at today leaves us with some questions. And, and one of the questions is who actually knows what's good? That's verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? That's, that's part of it. Life is quick. You're here, you're gone. And, and we're not meant to be cynical about that, but it does raise the question, so what do you do with your time? And, and he, he has this question, who knows what's good? 
for a man, for humanity, for, for humankind. But the opening verses, chapter five, verses 18 to 20, he, he shares his own observations, his insights. He actually tells us, uh, behold, I have seen to be good and fitting. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. And so on the one hand, he asks the question, who knows what's good for humanity? And what's interesting about Koheleth as a figure is, unlike a motivational speaker who presents himself as, I'm the one that has it together, I'm successful, and I will teach you how to be like me. He's very honest about his struggles. His questions are frank, and therefore, the modern reader might find him a bit more credible. And so he leaves us with this question, who knows? And he's not saying I have the definitive answer, because he himself, joy seems a little bit hard to hold on to. But he says, but I've seen what's good. He reports that back, I've seen what's good. And, and God gives enjoyment. And so it's, it's theological, it's, it's gift, there's grace in it. And it's possible. But the problem is, it's, it's not always present. And that's troubling. And so uh, on this question of should we be pursuing happiness, so what is good for human being? Well, if happiness brings good into your life, and he, he uses the language here of, of the person who has joy doesn't remember these other things. <laughs> you know, so if you have joy, even if your life is not perfect, you're okay with the imperfection. But your life could be perfect by other people's standards, and if you don't have joy, it, it doesn't do anything for you. So so this question of what we're pursuing, maybe it's not wise to pursue joy as an end in itself, but what are you pursuing? And is what you're pursuing part of a truly good life? Do you know what a good life is or are you just running after things? And how do you know? Well, one way of helping us answer the question is, is looking within your life, is there any joy? Not, not you have joy all the time because that's not a wise expectation but you have joy none of the time? Uh, or is joy a f- always a future thing? And the book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us challenge that or think through it. So what I want to talk about today is our unsatisfied appetites, because we're presented with this in this portion of Ecclesiastes of another tragic figure. We have these various examples, and here's the person who prospers, who succeeds, who achieves And he lacks at least one thing, but it's not possessions, it's not reputation, it's joy. And that's troubling. So that's where we're going to begin with uh, with, uh, this figure, but but where it allows us to think about our own unsatisfied appetites. Now, I'm using the language of appetite because in verse 7 of chapter 6, there's an insight about what drives human beings. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. See, appetite, desire, longing is good. It, it could be productive. There's a danger of, of an artificial form of contentment. Contentment is good, but complacency is not. We'll sit around and do nothing. And so being driven, aspiring is good, but, but he's giving an insight. And if you remember, there was a, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage where it says, all of, a toils, all of a man's toil comes from envy. <laughs> We're looking at what other people have. And that's helping define what appetites do we seek to desire because we have various instincts. We have the desire to be generous, but we also have the desire to slander. 
And so what, what, what appetites are we going to feed? Because those are the ones that we tend to uh, fuel and sort of like soda. If you're thirsty, they would say soda, it's a liquid. So it feels like you're quenching your thirst, but it's filled with sugar. And so you're actually dehydrating yourself. And so what appetites do you have and what are you feeding them with? It's always a good question to, to be mindful of, to make sure we're not wasting our lives. Verse seven of chapter six, all of our toil is, is for our mouth. There's a sense of our appetites. Now the word appetite here, in Hebrew, it's the word nefesh, which in, in, in other places is translated as soul. Now, when you're translating a word, just because it means soul in one uh, section doesn't mean it should mean soul here. Appetite is a good translation. But when you understand, you know, the, the, the why appetite and, and soul are connected, you could see in this passage, there are elements of that because he's, he's talking about the person who's feeding his body, but is never satisfied. And so what are you really feeding in life? And so uh, take, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, a very famous passage called the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord is one. Uh, that's how it begins. But, but Jesus refers to this passage, so we know that it's central, where in Deuteronomy, Moses, before he dies, tells his people that they should love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength. And you see those elements in this passage where at the end of chapter 5 and verse 20, it talks about having enjoyment from God in your heart. Love the Lord with all your heart. And so that's possible. And talking about all your strength, and, and here the picture is a person who doesn't have power. Now, what kind of power don't they, don't they have? They have status, they have prestige, they have possessions. They don't have the power to enjoy it. They're, they're weak in this one area. Uh, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Here's the person, uh, on the one hand, a vision of a heart that has joy. On the other hand, a person who doesn't have power to enjoy it. In the middle, that nefesh, that soul, you're to love the Lord with all of your soul, your deep being. The word here, translation of appetite is, I think, appropriate because he's talking about our hungers, our desires, that that's here. But it raises the question, what are your most basic desires and what are you going to feed? Because we have instinctive desires. We need food, uh, those sorts of things. And so it's not superficial to be hungry and to want to eat and even to enjoy it. Ecclesiastes recommends enjoying your food. But what desires, what appetites are fundamental to who you are? Think of the words of Jesus. You could gain the whole world, but lose your soul. And so what are you feeding? That kind of question is what leads Koheleth to, to ask the deeper, harder questions that we need to think about so we don't waste our lives. And so in verses one and two, he gives us this picture of an individual who's a tragic figure. He uses a strong word. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. So this heaviness of something that weighs us down because it's evil. What is it? A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. What is it that's so troubling about this? Now, on the one hand, human compassion. This feels so unjust. Somebody who sacrifices, works hard, seems gifted, gets everything that they want. 
we want that person to be able to enjoy it, perhaps, unless they've done it corruptly or if we're envious. And so the person who, who works hard and sacrifices and achieves, there's something that, that troubles us about. They're lacking joy in it. But that doesn't explain why it's heavy on all of mankind. <laughs> you know, why is this example heavy? And one reason I think that this is such a troubling example, because we don't know this person that's in Kahelet's mind, but what haunts us is most of us don't have the accomplishment and the achievement, but we have the hope. <laughs> My current dissatisfaction is because I still have work to do. I still have sacrifices, but one day there will be joy. What weighs heavy upon humanity is the person who's striving after everything we're striving after, who's ahead of us and they get to the top and they report back, we're lost. <laughs> I'm ahead of you and I got to where you thought you were going and it's empty. The heaviness on mankind is we are willing to struggle. We are willing to suffer. We are willing to make sacrifices if there's the promise of satisfaction. What's deeply troubling is the person who aspires or achieves everything we aspire to, and they have everything, but they don't have joy. It, it causes this deep question within us, whose dream am I living out of? And what am I sacrificing for? Will my life be wasted that at the end of the day, if I got everything I desired, that's the picture. But did I desire joy? <laughs> did I desire the joy that God could give? If I desired anything else and got it, but had no joy, would I have lived a good life? And so it leaves us with this troubling question, who knows what's good? And the implication is don't trust the people around you. <laughs> don't enviously watch people of what they're running after to assume that if you get what they want, you will have joy because it doesn't work that way. And so verse three of chapter six, the picture of a person whose soul is not satisfied with life's good things. That's the tragedy. Life is filled with evil and struggle. But here's a biblical view, but, but life's good things are still there. God is still at work in the midst of our broken world. Is there any pausing for satisfaction? Is there any joy? And there's a picture of somebody who has everything he desires, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. He, it's not simply that he has superficial things, but he has good things, but there's no joy. That's what we don't want. And so he gives this this sort of shocking, horrifying, uncomfortable example of a stillborn child in verse five, almost saying, is that life better because it finds rest rather than this person? That the comparison there is the person who sacrifices, who works hard and never finds rest for their soul. And it's this awful thing that, that's heavy upon us because if the person who gets everything that we desire isn't happy, what hope is there for the rest of us? Are we just suffering for nothing? Um, you know, anybody who's giving thought to wisdom, the wisdom tradition understands the concept of delayed gratification. The fool goes right for happiness and maybe gets a measure of it, but it's elusive, it's ephemeral. It's like chasing wind, it goes. And then you have no value in life. Most people know something that will really bring deep joy requires effort. 
skill, hard work, sacrifice, endurance, all of the kinds of values that most of us are willing to at least acknowledge is, is part of life in this world, but, but part of a good life. But we want there to be gain, payoff. That's, that's, that's the troubling question in, in Ecclesiastes is what gain is there for our toil? We're willing to make the sacrifices, but at the other side of it, will we get anything? And will there be rest? Will there be satisfaction? Will there be joy? Um, the question for us to grapple with today is not, are you so foolish that you're not putting in the work so that you can attain something that will satisfy you? If you're just sitting back expecting happiness to be dumped into your life, know that it probably doesn't work that way. Who knows? God's kindness, maybe it can. But the question for us to grapple with this week is, in the midst of your striving, is there any metric to, to give an indication that you're not wasting your time and energy? That's kind of a scary question because we know sometimes there's no joy, but there's good important things we need to do so that we'll get joy at the end. But over a larger season, so don't just look at the last couple of weeks, don't just look at this strange period that we've been in since COVID has put us indoors, but look over longer periods in your life and is the whole of your life sacrificing in the present for some future payoff that you hope will come, but there's no present experience of. And, and if that's the case, biblically, we would say there, there's something wrong. And so there's something right about sacrificing, about um, facing hard things, about not being superficial. We're not meant to have joy every moment, but if there's no joy, it, it raises the question of, of what is our vision of life? What is good? Um, and so, so the secular vision perhaps is for retirement. Just kill yourself now. And once you're done with your labor, then you could enjoy life. But what makes you think if you've had 20 miserable years that suddenly when you stop working, life will instantly get better. Or the other secular component is some utopia. We realize all of the struggles in this world and then we're satisfied. The religious vision is in heaven. If I go through this life miserable, but one day I arrive in heaven, well then, you know, that's the vision. And of course it's possible. Sometimes people are overwhelmed circumstantially in ways that what we're told is keep pressing on, be faithful, and there will be a reward of joy. That's absolutely true. But what we find in the scriptures is even those who are suffering, read Lamentations, chapter three in the middle, read Habakkuk, these awful things and at the end. And there's something about people in the Bible who genuinely are in tune with their suffering and their longing, but they see God's grace and kindness that gives them an installment of joy so that they know that they could keep going. And what I wanna ask you today is, is there any installment of joy? <laughs> Do you take any of it now, or have you been so conditioned to deny yourself that the only way of being you know is if, unless I'm miserable, I must be doing something wrong, something unfaithful? And we have a vision here to say, know that life will have misery. Don't be surprised. Don't feel guilty. You need to live wisely in it. But also know that life has good things. And if they're present in your life, but you don't see them and you don't enjoy them. That would be tragic. So what appetites are you feeding? And is there anything 
that you're bringing into your soul that, that brings satisfaction? That's a question that we need to, to ask. So what I want to talk about the rest of the time in my sermon is the concept of occupying yourself with joy, because that's, that's an option that we're given. It's not superficial. It's not that you could always be happy. It's not stop doing hard work. And it's helpful because Koheleth doesn't seem like a motivational speaker. He seems like a guy that might be diagnosed by a psychologist as needing some behavioral therapy, possibly needing a reference for a prescription. Um, Koheleth is a guy that's not walking around with a bunch of tips and tidbits of talking how, of how great everything is, but he's saying life is hard. But if you live wisely, you will take the goodness of it and, and, and live in the fullness. And therefore, he gives us a vision that I think is grounded theologically in God. It's honest. And maybe he's not calling us to follow him. He's not saying be like me, but he's saying, as I've watched, here's what I've seen. And that's where verses 18 to 20 of chapter five, he says, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of the life God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The word gift is important. The Bible, we are to strive, we are to work hard, we're to use our giftings, but, but we realize that we never have the power to attain certain things. Christianity would use the language of salvation. You can't earn it, you can't hold it. But joy is a fruit of the spirit, a spirit that God gives to us that, that brings love, joy, peace, <laughs> these various fruits. And so, yes, we should pursue and want those things, but you can't grab joy, but you can grab God's good gifts if he extends them to you. And so there's a contrast of the person who may have used wisdom and skill and power to sacrifice and attained everything they desired, but are never satisfied, never at rest because they have no joy. And there's the opportunity to recognize that God is still generous in every generation, even to struggling people, even in hard situations. And if you have the eyes to see his kindness and generosity, then the gift of God can bring joy and satisfaction. You know, if we think about it in our own lives, wisdom, we know that happiness is not going to come through just easy, superficial things, but we know that we're going to have to work for it. You read Ecclesiastes 5 and you think that joy is just this easy thing that God has a bucket of that he's ready to, to unload and distribute, as if joy is an easy thing to come into our life. But real satisfying joy, real lasting joy, a real gift won't be like that. And so you think of the difference of how Christians reflect on the New Testament promises between kids who go trick-or-treating and every house they're getting something, and it might be two lollipops or it may be a, a wrapped Snickers bar or occasionally something more exciting. Uh, but the expectation is, you know, we just assume that every house is going to give something. And if we knock on a door and nobody's home, it is what it is. Um, but you may be joyful when you get something and collectively going around and getting is fine, but, but it's different from somebody who gets a bone marrow translate, uh, uh, donation or somebody who has a kidney donated, recognizing that a person who distributes candy on Halloween will bring joy into somebody's life. 
But where there's something given that's costly, that has a profound effect on the receiver. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it, it shows the kind of person who, who desires all sorts of things and, and God brings good into their life, but they don't, they don't see it. And, and grace is somewhat cheap. And there's no joy because there's no satisfaction because you're wrongly oriented to the world. The gift of God in the New Testament is not simply that God is in heaven with more than he can produce. And so from eternity, he's been making all of these things and he's out of space and he needs to fill our world with them. What we're told is that the gift of God comes through God's sacrifice. That's the Christian vision. That God's kindness to us is not cheap and easy, but it's profoundly costly, but not for us. And that's what starts to bring joy into our lives when we realize that the hope of rest and satisfaction comes not from our feeding our desires, but from God renewing our souls by, by granting his spirit. And how does this come? The Christian understanding is it doesn't come by our earning it, and it doesn't come by God easily and quickly doing it, but it comes through God's self-sacrifice, his coming and enduring suffering and bearing shame and giving his life so that the gift to us would speak profoundly to our deepest needs. And as I was reflecting on, on this, and so so a first thought I had this week was, was the difference between the trick-or-treater who gets candy, but is not satisfied by that, and the person who gets something much weightier. I think once you have that deep understanding, then you don't need every gift of God to be this profound miracle. But when you understand that God has given Jesus and the cost of it, it brings enough of a change, it breathes enough life that then the simple gifts, when they come and where you see them, are received in a different way. And I was reflecting on this, this Halloween imagery because I was remembering uh, not simply uh, my kids who, who over the years have gone around seeking buckets of candy and being joyful, but not deeply thankful. But there was one time some years ago and, you know, trick-or-treating in Manhattan is this unusual thing in that you could go in our neighborhood up Frederick Douglass Boulevard where you go into the various stores uh, and you get candy. Uh, and there are a few side streets where maybe four or five buildings will have people sitting on their stairs and giving out. But, but you know, yeah, it, where we live, you have to walk three or four blocks to get to any of these places. And there was this one time some years ago, we were walking with, with our kids and we passed a building on a side street where nobody was giving out candy. And one of our kids looked into the lobby, wondering, is the door open? Should we go in and knock on doors? And there was a guy sitting near the building. And I don't know anything about this guy. And you can't judge by appearances. But looking at him, he did not look like he was thriving in life. It's possible he lived in the building and went outside for a smoke. I think he was smoking. Uh, but this was also across from Morningside Park. I wonder if he actually lived in the park. He looked like he might live on the streets. I don't know. So he's there next to the building. And my son looked in the window, in the, in the door, uh, with the question of, should we try going in? And we explained, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're not just supposed to go into somebody else's home. And this man saw this and he came over and it, and it seemed like he felt bad for the poor kid without, he had a bucket of candy, but, but, but here's a kid getting a lesson in life. You know, here's failure, here's struggle. And so the guy comes over and he says, yeah, I don't know that anyone here, if you went in, would, would give you any candy. And then he had this, this look of sorrow and regret, almost like, 
I wish I had candy to give you. And so he reaches into his wallet and he took out what I think was $2. I don't remember exactly, but, but it, it was really generous for a kid. You think, you know, most kids, if they're getting 10 cents of lollipops or, or 30 cents of a wrap Snickers, this is a 10 bagger. This is like percentage wise, $2, you know, that's pretty good for one Halloween, you know, installment. From an adult perspective, $2 is not a lot. What I don't know about this guy is, is what, what did it take for him to get $2? I, I have no idea. Again, I, for all I know, he's an investment banker. Uh, looking at him, he looked like he was poor. And he gave $2. And my wife and I, our instinct was, thank you, but you, you don't have to give that. But we didn't want to interrupt his generosity. And yet we felt bad. And I don't know, actually, I should have asked my kids before this, if any of them remember this. I don't know that they do. And if you found this man today, my guess is he didn't remember, even if that $2 was a large portion of his hourly earnings, my guess is he has no memory of having given that $2 away. But I do, actually. I'll always remember it because there was something in the spirit. It wasn't about the $2. It was about a guy that, that looked at a kid and thought, boy, I, I want to give something. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know what I have to give. And so I'm going to find something. And in his giving, there was something that I saw in the reality of, of the possibility of joy in our world. And, and that, that simple gift of somebody just speaking into our situation, stepping in and giving, and then withdrawing and expecting nothing in return is a reminder to me that, that the Christian must be grounded in the gift of God, the sacrificial gift of God. Jesus Christ gave his life. We can't miss that. We can't think of that as some unimportant thing. That's the foundation of all things. But when you have that, it breathes new possibility to say, if life is given to you, then in all of your striving and struggling, you're not wasting your time and your resources. But, but actually, uh, if God is at work, there's the possibility that now you will start to recognize in small installments throughout the day. It may be the delicious thing you eat this afternoon. It may be the person who affirms you tomorrow. It may be your subway coming on, on time, which you didn't expect. It could be any number of these things where you start to recognize, yes, we live in a broken world. Life is not easy. But God continues to, to show up in good ways. And what that means is there. There's the hope of a future joy that will satisfy my currently dissatisfied soul. But if I'm living a good life as God presents it and calls me to, I could actually draw on some of it today. <laughs> I could recognize the good gifts of verse three of chapter six when they come and, and experience joy in them. And when that happens, what it does is it empowers us to, to keep going and, and living the kind of life that God calls us to. So Ecclesiastes leaves us with a question in chapter six. Who knows what is good for a man to do with his life? And what the Christian should do is, is ask, well, does, does God answer that question anywhere else in scripture? That's how we read the Bible. We, we, we read through the, we want the Bible to help us interpret the Bible. So we have a question. Does anyone know what is good for human being to do? Well, Micah, the prophet, comes to confront us with the fact that we're not doing what's good. And then in Micah 6, 8, one of the more famous verses of the Bible, he's, it says he has told you, oh man, what is good. 
So we're not left to guess. Who knows what's good for a human being to do? Micah says, God knows what's good for a human being to do. And he's told you what you should do. So what does the Lord require of you? Well, to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Is that everything you need to know? It's not everything in the details, but it's a big picture. That's a good starting place. Live a just and upright life. Right now, our country is divided because everyone's committed to justice, but some form of it. And so maybe the right-leaning form of justice is personal morality, and the left-leaning form of justice is social advocacy. Well, let's go back to the Bible and say, what does God tell us about living a righteous and upright life? Because that's part of the vision of a good life. It's not simply something you have to do. It's what you should do if you want to have a good, satisfying life. So let's study this. Who are examples of righteousness? What does God teach and command? How do we live justly? To love mercy goes to that heart. We're in cha- verse, chapter 5 of verse 20. God puts joy in our heart. What is the evidence of a joyful heart? Somebody who has that kesed, that loving kindness, that faithfulness, that love of mercy, the compassionate heart. And it's that walking humbly with God, that life of fellowship, not the alienated life where you seek to satisfy your appetites in the things that God can give you, but you seek to rest in God and what he has given you and then find satisfaction for your soul in whatever things God has brought into your life. It's a radically different vision. You don't need to figure out he's told you what's good. And you need to have the faith to trust that if he's given you the grace and if he's walked humbly with you and he's fulfilled righteousness, giving it to us through Christ, and if he has demonstrated mercy that though you have not yet lived up to his standard, he still offers a gift of grace. Once that becomes the new orientation where you then walk with God, it means not only do we have the joy of our salvation, but a saved people have the joy of God's daily providence and provision. Sometimes in gratefulness, sometimes we're really looking for it. But God's goodness will always be there for us to take hold of. And so I want to leave you with two things. Uh, one, as we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what does it mean to give a good, live a good life? Well, Ecclesiastes gives us a vision that includes liberty. There's a lot of freedom in this. And I think the vision of Micah 6 If you live justly, and if you love mercy, and you walk humbly with God, it means there's a lot of flexibility in what you can do, what you can do for work, where you live, what your hobbies are. Um, What's helpful about that is sometimes I think we, we gain a vision at some point of what we think will be a good life, and we're supposed to do that. What career would use my gifts, would be satisfying, would provide the kind of life that I want? That's wise. That's good. But sometimes we get so tied to our vision or maybe our parents' understanding or your peers' vision that we lack the freedom to to count our losses and realize, "I, I actually don't want that, or it's not satisfying, or it's not working out, or the freedom to keep doing it and not thriving in it, but finding satisfaction in it. We get stuck where that doesn't become a possibility. And so as we go through Ecclesiastes, he talks about whatever your hand finds to do, do with all of your might. And God has already approved of what you do. And there's a vision that says not that you could do whatever you like in life. You need to live justly. You need to love mercy. You need to walk humbly with God. There are parameters. There's a vision for good life. But you can be a librarian or a bus driver or a physician 
uh, there's lots of options and you could try being a bus driver and find out that you hate it and quit and go do something else, go back to school. There's lots of options and why that's helpful is because sometimes our joy is so tied to our appetites, our desires, the things that we think will feed our souls when we're really in the category of what's gonna feed our mouths. You need to work, you need to have your livelihood. If you could love your job, fantastic. But if you don't love your job, it still might be good that you do it and God may have purpose for you. And so, so maybe you need to broaden your vision. Right now, I don't know if this is what I should be doing. Right now, I don't know if I'm thriving. Right now, I'm not accomplishing or getting recognition. But God, will you help me live justly? Will you give me a heart for mercy? Can I walk with you in it? And then I could go back to school. I could quit my job. Um, just because everyone else says that marriage is the next logical step and will bring happiness doesn't mean that married people are happy. And so do you want to be ha married? Good, pursue it. But will that satisfy your soul? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But if you're living justly and if you love mercy and if you're walking with God, you can be married and unhappy or you can be single and happy. Um, what, what appetites are you feeding? <laughs> Uh, and so there, there's this vision given to us of a kind of freedom that says everyone who knows God and his grace can live a good, satisfying life. Nobody has a perfect life. Nobody has everything. The tragedy would be to have everything you want and to be miserable. The possibility is you can have very little of what you want, but you can have joy because God gives it to you. Um, I had a second thing I was going to say. I'm looking at the time. I'll just leave you with Think about the Sabbath, about working, but also stopping your work to celebrate. And maybe in an upcoming week, I'll share some of the details of what I had thought about that. But, but the Sabbath is a gift. If you can't stop your work to enjoy the fruits of it, there's a spiritual reality you need to reflect on. I'm not going to say much more about that. But what I want to leave you with today is um, I don't know that you should be pursuing happiness as an end, but if you see that God has pursued you, and if you walk humbly with him, as Jesus has walked with us, and if you look at Jesus, who's just and merciful, and you seek to live like him, uh, you will not waste your life. And if you don't have joy all the time, know that you will have joy. And so take what you can today and keep living justly, keep loving mercy, but keep walking humbly with God. And God will give you something good this week. Look for it and celebrate it when it comes. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, Koheleth is this interesting figure that he's, he's not happy. He's not a mo motivational speaker, but you have shown him what's good. And he's reporting to us that if we look towards you and not towards him, uh, we could have joy. And Lord, what wisdom that he anticipated that there would be somebody who knows what he doesn't know, that one day Jesus would come and would announce that our joy could be full because he would fill us with his own spirit. He would give us the gift of life. He would make it so none of us have to waste our lives in misery, but that we can uh, do all that we do with energy and might for your glory, trusting that we will find rest for our souls in him. Lord, do a work in each of us where we're struggling. I pray especially for the most discouraged in our midst, uh, especially given our divided country, um, the limitations and lifestyle changes because of COVID, 
anyone who, who really is having a tough time and can do little to fix it. And it's not that they're bad. It's not that they've done wrong. It's not that you've left them, but there's a time in a season where we're struggling. Lord, we pray that none of us would struggle without hope, but we would see something of your goodness, that the joy of salvation would be enough this week that then any other joy that you bring would be something that would satisfy us. But for all of us, renew our appetites, that we would not waste our lives running after what will never satisfy, but that you would give us what's truly life and that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and that you would not leave us disappointed, but we would want what's good and by your grace and generosity, you'd fill our lives with what's good. May we be a people who bears witness to that truth and show us grace this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.